Welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy, brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Adjapong Parsons. This is a very special episode. This is our 50th episode, everyone. Uh, and with me to celebrate, I've got Pippa Neal, I've got Tess Collie, and also this is our last episode with Hannah, who's been recording all of our episodes. So thank you very much to Hannah. In this week's very special episode, we're going to be covering the ULES woes, nutrient neutrality striking points, and an account of the 25-year environment plan. For our deep dive, we're going to be finding out the latest on biodiversity net gain with Natural England's Nick White. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber! Right, so for our first story, we are talking the ultra-low emission zone. Pippa, can you bring us up to speed? Yes, I can. So last week, Labour blamed the by-election result in Uxbridge, where um, the Tories narrowly beat Labour in Boris Johnson's former um, constituency by 495 votes. Um, And the Labour Party blamed this loss on the London Mayor Sadiq Khan's plans to expand the ultra-low emission zone to outer London, to Uxbridge. Um, so yeah, from August this year, the ULES, which currently operates as far, but not including the capital's north and south circular roads, will be expanded London-wide. Um, and this scheme is pretty controversial, particularly with outer London boroughs, who, with five councils actually taking the mayor to court over this, um, with a result of that court case expected imminently. Um, but last Friday, following this um, loss for the Labour Party, um, the Labour leader Keir Starmer reportedly urged Sadiq Khan to, in quotes, reflect on the impact of expanding the ULES. Um, and speaking at the National Policy Forum on Saturday, Starmer said that the result in Uxbridge demonstrates that there is never any reason to be complacent. And it's a reminder, as Danny Beals, who was the Labour candidate, in said, in an election, policy matters and we're doing something very wrong if policies put forward by the Labour Party end up on each and every Tory leaflet. We have to face up to that and learn the lesson. Um, And AIDS kind of reportedly said, various newspapers reported that um, Sadiq Khan and Starmer had an, in quotes, constructive call on Friday and that the London mayor is open to new ideas. However, The Guardian said that he is refusing to back down on the planned timings of its implementation, but it's just open to kind of other ideas of mitigating the impact of expanding it. And it's not long. We're talking end of next month, right? That's yeah. when it's going to sort of hit, exactly. hit all the boroughs of London. Right. So it's kind of like Labour on Labour, Sadiq on Keir. But we don't know what Keir's proposing, do we, at this stage as an alternative? No, it's all it's all quite vague. I think like um, Sadiq Khan is calling for a, a better and bigger scrappage scheme and wants the government itself to introduce funding to help, you know, people who have vehicles on low incomes that are that are not compliant with the ULES to be able to replace their vehicles. Um, so I think that is what it's looking like at the moment, but it's all a bit unclear as to exactly what all these anonymous briefings are and who said what. Bit of a backlash. And what have I mean, what have other people been saying about these, you know, these discussions, Tess? Um well one one reaction I noted in particular was from Rosamund Kissy Deborah, who she's the founder and executive director of the Ella Roberta Family Foundation. She was the mother of Ella Kissy Deborah, who she was the first person in the world in 2020 to have air pollution cited as a cause of death on a mm. death certificate. Um she urged Keir Starmer to rethink his stance on ULES. Um and kind of she talked about how 
London has the worst asthma rates across all of Europe. Um, countrywide, she said, between 22 to 24 children will die this year because of asthma. 12 of those will come from London. Like, that's pretty shocking. You've actually stopped and think about it. 12 children. And one um, of those being Ella, who was just nine years old when she lost her life. Yeah, just, you know, really small children. Um, so, yeah, while this becomes a political parlour game, that's, mm. I guess, the reality of it all and, and it is a bit of a game because i've noticed that the kind of this has kind of opened the floodgates to a whole bunch of policy discussion yeah reminiscent of kind of the david cameron era where he said sort of let's cut the green crap in re- reference to environmental <laughs> policies uh, yeah. and c- can yeah. either of you speak on that pippa yeah so i think it was specifically jacob rees mogg who i'm kind of sad that we're talking about again i have to say um but he um said i think uh, it was on gb news i think he said you know this is the ulez backlash you know this shows basically i'm paraphrasing but that you know any environmental policy that taxes or charges individuals we need to scrap and amongst the things he's calling for the government to scrap is the green levy which is an environmental charge added to energy bills which is used to pay for energy policy so the money goes towards schemes such as supporting energy efficiency improvements helping vulnerable people um, and encouraging the take-up of renewable technology Um, and he also was calling for the government to scrap its um, ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030 um, there's been quite a lot of talk around this, but um, according to reports, Rishi Sunak is firm that he's not going to scrap this. And Michael Gove was actually on the BBC Today programme this morning and reiterated that that policy is not going anywhere. But apparently there is talks of having an Aston Martin exemption, which would give, in quotes, small car producers more time to transition to electric vehicles. That's what we need. <laughs> yeah. Aston Martins to be able to keep going. Mm. Speedy policy. I like it. And there's also, I was reading about low traffic neighbourhoods, how that's kind of been brought up. And I mean, can can we just talk any more about that? So yeah, the Times also reported that the government is considering plans to ensure that no new low traffic neighbourhoods are approved, with ministers said to be considering banning councils from using the national number plate database to enforce them. Um, So yeah, that's another interesting air pollution kind of related policy that's kind of getting involved in all of this seems to have opened the floodgates a little bit. It was a really interesting comment I read from Jeffrey Lean, who was the former environment editor for The Telegraph. And he said, it seems that people are confusing a health issue, air pollution, with a climate issue. And I thought that was a really interesting point to make, that to, to conflate the two. And actually, maybe we need to be putting this back and referring back to the asthma problems that you were talking about, Tess. Mm, yeah possibly but they're, they're so interlinked mm. I mean I think you can't really separate you know you talk about people dying of like heat um kind of related issues is that a climate issue or health? they're kind of the same right. one and the same yeah. so I don't know if it's actually that helpful to separate them but there's definitely I think actually they need to be connected more if anything than separated mm. but you know it is all really kind of quite surreal to be watching this all unfold in British politics at the same time as we're reading about record temperatures, uh, like, you know, like temperatures being Mm. smashed. Sicily, I think today, 47 degrees, forest fires in Greece, these kind of crazy pictures of people in roads being evacuated. Meanwhile, Uxbridge, ULES, U-turns, it's kind of all going on. (laughs) There's an election to be won. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if, if, they, if that's the right hand to play, but it seems that everyone is moving this political football. Yeah, what always becomes whenever there's a, an issue in an election, I think, especially around the environment, it becomes like, well, let's stop doing that then, rather than often it's around things like delays or things aren't quite right. It's never, it's, it's very rarely, oh, let's speed it up and get there quicker so that it's, there's less kind of these teething issues mm. or, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's do it faster so that let's get more money into it so there's less problems. It's always stop it then let's stop, let's pull all the initiatives or yeah. so it always goes that way, it seems. I did think that was interesting with the ULES in Uxbridge and like with the Labour Party's campaigning on that because um didn't really go into that in the beginning, but this all started with both the Tory and the Labour candidate in that local election was um, saying that they would block the ULES mm. expansion, which just to listeners, they neither of them have the power to do so. But that's kind of what the policy, like that's what the argument was all about. And Keir Starmer had expressed support for Danny Beals, the Labour um, candidate. And I saw on Twitter, it was Zach Polensky, who's the deputy leader of the Green Party. And he was kind of criticising Labour's approach to this and saying, instead of leaning into the concerns that, you know, people are having around the ULEZ and the cost, perhaps they should have highlighted that, you know, this is a Sadiq Khan, a Labour mayor's he's the one pushing this expansion. Perhaps they could have encouraged people, educated, you know, had more campaigns to raise awareness of, mm. as you were saying, Tess, all the kind of huge impacts that air pollution is having on people's mm. health, rather than just kind of be going down the cost of living, um, which is, you know, a valid argument, but it seems like they yeah. kind of took the easy option there. Yeah, I don't think people would like consciously opt into kind of having their children vulnerable to potentially dying of asthma would they mm. like yeah it's it's unfortunate the way these things tend to end up going we've brought up michael gove he was in the news this week um he has spooked nature markets as i understand it <laughs> tess can you can you sort of tell me more oh he's a more than more than spook them he's also spooked Green groups are really concerned because uh, Michael Gove told The Telegraph at the weekend that these water pollution rules called nutrient neutrality, um, which relate to nutrient overloads, uh, he's saying they should be changed because they get the balance wrong um, in in the way that they are um, holding up development at the moment because this Natural England uh, told local councils, look, you can't be approving new development if it's going to add to um nutrient levels in protected waterways and so a conversation now needs to be had with natural england about it it feels like this has been coming for a few weeks now because the government's been mooting a change uh to the rules via the newspapers um of course <laughs> um and and it's sort of been getting businesses because basically what's happened is when these rules came in a few years ago um some businesses thought, okay, well, we, we can we can provide a service here. Um, and so there's a few businesses who are providing mitigation for nutrients. So that's through nature-based solutions, as they're called. That's often wetlands. Um, and now with the the government suggesting they're going to pull all of these, um, pull the requirement that that you know development not add to to nutrient pollution. Um, there's no uncertainty in the market, and they're worried it's going to draw to a complete halt. Developers will start thinking, well, maybe I don't need to put this money up, so maybe I'll just wait. Or landowners might think, maybe I don't need to, or maybe not need to, but maybe it's not wise for me to kind of turn my my land into a, a wetland because this this thing might not, this rule might not exist soon. Um, and that's a real shame. This this set to say because we're so close to having a solution. Um, 
a group of businesses and NGOs wrote to the prime minister this week saying that uh, there are like there are there's mitigation available for seventy thousand homes at the moment. That's almost half of the number estimated by the uh, Home Builders Federation to be held up at the moment, which they say is one hundred and forty five thousand. Um, and that, millions have been sunk into this this, yeah. this endeavour to clear yeah. the backlog of housing near special areas of conservation. Or, or yeah, yeah. The, this, in this letter, they said that 5.3 million public funds has already been spent on things like consultancy services and nutrient trading platforms um, and loads of time and resources. DEFRA and Natural England, like they have been working on this for for years. Um, it just, it, again, it feels like something's got hold of by... Um, it's become a political conversation now. It's about who's going to build more homes. We've been hearing a lot about, you know, Labour wanted to build homes. Now we've been hearing this week, Michael Gove saying we're going to build a million homes by the end of the parliament. It's all about build, build, build. A million by the end of the parliament. They, have, they haven't even hit 300,000 a year yet. So how are they going to... I mean, I, I saw that number and I thought, oh, you are just punting for headlines. It seems impossible to me. So well, so they're saying that, oh, the SAC backlog, sorry, the nutrient mm. neutrality backlog, that'll... That'll serve up some of the the, the free. Well, they have not set thing is they they had all, we had all this briefing in the papers, um, and then when Gove made his big speech, yes, on Monday, um, didn't actually say anything about nutrient neutrality, which is interesting. Mm. Um, but I think this this is it's going to be one that's going to brew for a while because they're saying they're going to change it through legislation through the Leveling Up Bill. How they actually could do that at the moment is actually a bit unclear because this bill is almost you know it's very late in in the day. Um, procedurally, that could be difficult. But of course, we just had the Retained EU Law Act passed. The Environment Act gives a, a way for the Secretary of State to change rules around um, protected sites and this water pollution rule. Uh, so there's there's ways it could happen. But, um, you know, there's a lot of... of um, it's not going to be easy for them necessarily to change it. And I wonder if that's why it wasn't announced yesterday, because mm. they... Maybe you haven't worked out how they're going to do it yet. <laughs> Natural England, the regulator, which is in charge of sort of implementing the scheme and, you know, the first to put the brakes on down in the Solent, um, held up on nutrient neutrality there because of the special area of conservation. What have they said in their defence of, of, you know, the proposition of bonking um, nutrient neutrality on its head? You like that? <laughs> bonking, I just- <laughs> It, it, it's one of those whack-a-moles policies. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking today. So in a comment, Marianne Spain, who's the chief executive of Natural England, um, she said it's simply not true to say that nutrient neutrality is a blocker. The solutions are in place and, or, and are already working. And she continued to say that, you know, this isn't because we don't recognise the challenge the situation has posed, but it is nothing new or unusual to require mitigation against the impacts of new housing, which is why developers are asked to contribute to new roads, schools and shops if they build developments in areas where local services are under strain. That's so interesting. So she's trying to compare it to like Section 106 agreements almost and and offsetting the damage. Mm. Is it fair, though, to blame house developers on the pollution caused by new development my understanding was actually they're the small part in a much bigger puzzle of nutrient pollution yeah i mean it's true that they certainly aren't the major um cause of nutrient pollution in waterways it's it's by quite a long mile agriculture is the the biggest villain of the piece um followed by the water companies and then down you look down the list and you get to development if you were starting from scratch building a country and you thought who who are we going to try and make sure this doesn't happen you'd target 
all of them together, or certainly agriculture first. Um, this has come about through a sort of legal mechanism. That's why we've got here. But I do, I can see where naturally going to come from when they say that, because their job is to enforce the rules we have. This is a rule we have. Mm. Um, and while it's true that development is not, you know, the biggest um, kind of cause of it, is it okay to say, well, okay, then you can keep making it worse, even if it's by a smaller margin? Should we be accepting that by any section of um, of, of, of society? Um, I don't know. I'm just a journalist, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I think that's a it's a reasonable question to ask. So back to the top of the piece, then, when you know we're talking about the housing secretary upsetting these natural capital markets. I know you've done a lot of work on what these are. Do they <laughs> exist? What are they? Um, where you know where can we learn more about that? Yeah, we just published a big sort of briefing on on natural capital on our on our website. So if anyone's interested in in reading more about, or certainly in more depth, like where where these markets, as they're called, are coming from, and what natural capital is, it's quite an interesting. It's not really a new idea, but it's it's kind of gaining ground. This idea that nature is an asset, and you can kind of give it economic value, uh, and if you do so, you sort of bring it into the wider economy uh, in a way where it gets more investment than it currently does. That's what proponents say. Some people who are more sceptical say well, if you start looking at nature as an asset, um, it's it's putting the con into conservation um, <laughs> is, like is quite a good phrase. Leaf wash is the new green wash. That's my favourite phrase. Um, but yeah, we've got stuff on biodiversity net gain, nutrient neutrality, carbon codes, you name it, the risks, the potential impact. So yeah, if you want to learn more, go there. Good. So our final story then, um, we're talking the 25-year environment plan. There was an assessment, a review, the last one, as I understand it, um, a final update of the report. Is there any good news in it? It's loads. Loads, great. <laughs> Everything's actually looking pretty good. Okay. No, that's not true. Is it? <laughs> no, there's been little substantive improvement across large swathes of uh, of the government's 25-year environment plan, unfortunately. You had me for a moment. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I missed that one. Sorry, James. Uh, I thought, make this the good news section, even if there isn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah unfortunately, so this, this report kind of gives indications of how government's faring across multiple different indicators and it's not it's doing okay well in, in a few areas but not many um in the thriving plants and wildlife indicator section it showed just just two areas showing improvement and that's um the abundance of harbor seals in northeast england and the percentage of marine bird species achieving relative breeding abundance targets in the celtic sea i mean not unimportant but you know they're quite small niche things um, the remaining 11 either indicate there's been little or no change or a deterioration. Um, that's just on the wildlife section. Little progress being made in air quality as well. Um, this That's what the plan shows. And our triple SIs, the health of them, I saw some pretty sad stats. Mm. Yeah, so more of the same, sadly. But um, the report says that the indicator on the number of triple SIs in England in a favourable condition has shown little or no change between 2017 to 2022. Um, and it also notes that there has been a net decrease in the area of triple SIs in a favourable condition, down from 44% in 2003 to 38.2% in 2022. Um, but the, the report says that this sudden drop 
um, in the percentage um, of triple SIs in a favourable condition was due to the larger than average number of condition assessments completed and recorded in the final year before the public service agreement target deadline of December 2010. I thought this was quite interesting because we actually, um, Tess wrote a story this morning um, based on a report by the campaign group Wild Justice, which found that 66% of triple SIs by area have not been assessed in the past 10 years, with the most common year of last assessment being in 2010. And Wild Justice says this implies that as site assessments are brought up to date, the proportion of higher quality sites is revealed to be less, and the proportion of lower quality sites is revealed to be higher than it appears at first glance. So, so it's bad, but it could be It even could worse. be much worse, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And, and I, I noted in the 25-year environment plan that there's that goal of, you know, bringing 75% of protected sites into favourable condition by 2042. Mm. Should we care about the 25-year environment plan? Like, why does it matter? Yeah, well, so the 25-year environment plan, which has now been replaced by the environmental improvement plan, which, you know, of course, sounds completely different. Um, they are important because they they set out a kind of framework for how, and they agree to a cross-government, you know, in, in well, not in theory, they are, they agree to a cross-government and they to set a framework for how departments come up with policies to meet the various targets within them. In the in the you know environmental improvement plan, a number of these are legally binding, supported by the Environment Act, and some of them are not. Like that one you just mentioned about triple uh, SIs, that's a, a policy target, um, and they give civil society and the public a, a, a way to track progress um, that the government's making or not making, and it. It, it, it's a cons- if these things are measured each year, you can you can actually track how things are going. So they are important, but you know, of course, because when things aren't legally binding, like the triple SI target, even if you shout all you like that that's not been met, there's no real comeuppance to it. So it's important in in that it gives a way to somewhere to hang policy, but uh, it doesn't mean things will actually always happen. So this, there was a lot of response to this um, government's own report, uh, it should be said. Did you guys pick out any sort of key reactions or any interesting take-homes? Um, yeah, well, I thought Richard Benoit from the Wildlife and Countryside Link was quite interesting because he reacted by throwing the gauntlet down to political parties, including like Labour, Lib Dems, all of them, uh, I guess thinking about the election coming up, saying that, you know, what we saying all those parties will need to take a leap forward in ambition. He said in particular, uh, you know, what we need is a a boost to wildlife friendly farming budgets, new responsibilities on polluters to pay for nature recovery, swift action on the 30 by 30 target and um, a green, green jobs program and to establish environmental rights in law. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where all the green groups have come together, not their heads together and they're all backing the same things they want to see. And so that's, that, that was quite an interesting response, mm. I found. I, saw, I also thought it was interesting what wasn't said, um, because Therese Coffey delivered a speech on the same day that the report was published, but she barely mentioned mentioned the report, um, giving no details of its findings, instead just kind of flagging a raft of environmental policies launched by the government in recent years. So perhaps, you know, it's one she maybe is a bit embarrassed to, <laughs> to talk about. Oh, Therese Coffey. 
<laughs> Do you want to add to that? <laughs> I would, but we're out of time. Oh. Um, and, but not before we move on to our last and final section. It's a new section to the Eco Chamber podcast uh, that we're introducing. It's our moment of the week. It's not really of the week because we were going to talk about last week as well. So that's allowed. Moment moment of the seven days, last seven days. Moment seven. Seven moments. There'll it's like, you know, reasonable months. recent times. Reasonable recent times. Reason, the moment our, of reasonable recent times. The moment times. of reasonable recent times. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to kick off. My, my moment of the week was the interruption of the British Open Golf of a Natterjack Toad interrupting play. And there was only one person in the whole club who was actually uh, who had a license to be able to handle and move the toad on I thought that was brilliant absolutely mm. amazing so it disrupted it, the play for hours and it was fantastic you say I, there was only one person I'm surprised there was one mm. person yeah. well quite and, and actually what, what's funny over that weekend you had the Just Up Oil I was going to say protests they should take some tips so maybe maybe nature is looking at or, or we're looking at the Natterjack Toads I, I don't know but yeah that was my moment of the week to get you into policy kind of teams James. I'm wasted here yeah <laughs> oh, was anyone else has anyone else spotted anything I think mine has to be the news oh, that the else? first white-tailed eagle has, has successfully fledged in England. Um, this is reportedly the first one in 240 years, so it is quite amazing news. Um, and there's a very cute video that we've uploaded on N's report, if you want to have a quick, quick look at that. Click vote, click vote. <laughs> and Tess? Click vote, click vote. And Tess? Mine's not animal-based. Um, <laughs> the political <laughs> animal. That's what you think about their daily. But, um, <laughs> the political my, animal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, mine is the kind of Lib Dem reaction to their victory in, in the by-elections on social media. So... They, they had a lot to say, a lot of uh, pop culture references. They had to get out there. They had Peep Show, for example. Um, but my favourite one was jumping on the Barbie bandwagon, um, saying that, well, you know, let's celebrate like Hollywood does and <laughs> putting a picture out of, of Parliament kind of covered kind of in the Lib Dem orangey yellow and it's saying Lib Dems in the Barbie font. And I just thought, God, someone's got a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> yeah. I just love how much how just how happy they were, you know. It's just they really bat themselves when they yeah. win the cannon. We saw a, a David. Oh, sorry, mm. that's two moments of reasonable that's right, recent times. Of happiness. That's fine. Yeah, it was. I saw the cannon. The cannon was spectacular. Yeah, the, the props win. they get together. Um, so that just sort of made me smile amongst all the Ulez madness. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. New moment of the week section. Listeners, tell us if you like it. Tell us your moment of the week. Email us ecochamber at haymarket.com. For our deep dive this week, I sat down with Dr. Nick White from Natural England, the government's nature regulator. Nick is the agency's principal advisor for biodiversity net gain, a policy intended to make sure that when developers build, rather than damaging the natural environment, they add to it. It's one of the key parts of the government's plans to turn the tide for our natural world. Come November, a new legal biodiversity net gain requirement will enter force, which will mean most developers will have to produce at least a 10% gain in nature in relation to their projects. However, it's fair to say that some environmentalists are sceptical about how effective the new requirement will really be. So, I began by asking Nick just what kind of impact Natural England is expecting biodiversity net gain to have environmentally. 
I think one of the most significant things about this approach is the fact that all too often in the past, unless the development was impacting on a protected site or protected species, essentially no regard was given to the nature that may have been on that site, whether it was damaged or not. For the first time, development is going to have to consider that nature. Uh, it's helping to then start to reinforce the mitigation hierarchy because it's asking people questions around how can they avoid an impact in the first place. Mm. Um, but also it's making sure that if there if there's a loss or if there's damage to particular habitats, or even if there's not, if that whatever that habitat was, you've got to leave a you know, more of it or better quality of it as a consequence of that. And I think that's really important. We often focus only on some of the really protected, high quality sites, forgetting that actually often some of the, the kind of low value habitats are as important for, for wildlife um, mm. as well. And so this will be, this should start to address the kind of the issue of, of kind of fragmentation of nature, the kind of gradual loss of nature through the development process. Yeah, and so the government has loads of really big environmental targets. We've got the the twenty thirty target to halt the decline of species. We've got the thirty by thirty that's restoring thirty percent of land and and see for nature by by the same date. How big a pillar of the plan to meet those targets is biodiversity net gain? It's an important one. I think it's important to stress it's it's not a silver bullet. So we do need other mechanisms as well. Things like elm etc. are going to be as important. But in terms of if you if um, People can remember when uh, there was a report back in about 2010 with Professor Sir John Lawton, who talked about a need for bigger, better, more joined up places. What NetGain can do really well, I think, is deliver some of that kind of wider improvement to the natural environment and help create some of better connectivity between habitats as well. So it's not directed primarily at the best sites. There are other mechanisms for doing that. But in terms of just improving the, the kind of wider quality of, of the environment, uh, and also, okay, I think, reminding us that it, this impacts us as people as well. So it's providing us with opportunities to live and work in places that you've got more kind of nature on your doorstep as well. And we know some of the wider benefits that can deliver. Mm. So this is going to become mandatory, compulsory, legally uh, obligated on developers uh, or most developers uh, this November. Um, how's it? How's it exactly meant to work? When a developer approaches a local authority uh, with a proposal, how how are they meant to show that they'll, they'll produce this ten percent increase in nature? So I think the first thing is we're encouraging people to think about this as early as they can as part of their development process. So ideally, if a developer can start thinking at site selection, outline, design stage, how can they, if possible, integrate nature into their scheme? That won't always be possible, but you know, thinking about that first. Um, identifying uh, potential third-party landowners as well they may need to deliver stuff off-site. They'll submit a uh, they'll need to do a, a, a metric calculation. So there's a standardised biodiversity metric that everyone's going to use. doesn't matter whether you're a big developer or a small one, uh, you'll be using the same one. So to, to do a metric calculation that says, this was the baseline value of my site before anything happened to it. Um, and then rerun that calculation with their designs included in that to say, actually, on site, I can improve the quality to this level. That may get them their 10% already. Uh, and in many cases, that probably will be the case. Um, if it's not, then it's looking to go off-site and say, I need to contract with third-party landowners or use my own land if I've got some land that's, that's not going to go for development to make good the shortfall off-site as well. Um, again, it's using the same metric as a calculation. So they basically they submit that to the planning authority along with a game plan template. So this will be a standardised template that kind of sets out, this is our strategy for achieving that game. This is how we're going to plan to, if it's on our site, manage and maintain that over the duration of the 30 years. If it's off-site, it will need to go onto a national register and the landowner will then be responsible for delivering those outcomes over time as mm. well. Um, 
And I mean, I that that what you mentioned there about developers having to go off site that relates to what you were talking about earlier about the mitigation hierarchy. And uh, first of all, the idea is that people don't or developers don't damage things. Yeah. Then they have to try and find the gain nearby the development, and only then they can go off site. But I've, I have heard some concerns from developers, um, particularly on what happens if they have to go if they have to go off site and, and buy biodiversity credits as yeah. uh, from third parties. How how can they be sure of what they're buying? So um, it's important to ask questions around actually what is the the kind of competency of people that you're you're going to be working with. There are some uh, existing standards out there. So there's an existing British standard on on biodiversity net gain. There's work uh, we're doing with uh, the development sector with bodies like um, SIEM, so the Professional Body for Ecologists, uh, the Landscape Institute, um, and also with bodies representing landowners to say, how can we improve quality? How can we raise standards on this as well? So we are piloting something later on this year as a quality assurance initiative to say, actually, everyone wants confidence in the system. They want to know that who they're contracting with is going to be able to deliver this outcome. Um, So we're starting that process to say, what's needed to to give people that that confidence is it ultimately something that's accreditation that won't be in place to start with but is that something we could helpfully work towards Um, but in the first instance it would be very much pointing to here's the existing good practice that's been out there for a while now Um, how can we help you to make sure you're implementing that i mean ultimately for a land for landowners um, they are the ones if you've gone off site that are legally responsible for delivering this they will be entering into a legal contract um, mm. and that's either a section 106 agreement or conservation covenant so if the worst comes to the worst and we hope this doesn't happen enforcement action could be taken against them if they fail completely to deliver but in most instances we wouldn't expect to see that because they'll also be doing regular reporting back to um, the consenting body to say this is how we're going um, and if it looks like things have gone awry mm. what are they doing to address that and as who well? is that con- who, who is it that um, will be checking up on them so it'd either be um, the planning authority or if it's been legally secured through a conservation covenant it would be the responsible body for that particular conservation covenant mm-hmm. okay got lots of questions for you about uh, all sorts of the metric that we just talked about but I just want to get you first on um, so it's a topic that's being talked about lots in all the national newspapers at the moment. House building is massive, and particularly in regards to the idea that there are environmental regulations slowing down development. Now they are not really. That's not really to do with biodiversity net gain. That's being talked about with nutrient neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, but biodiversity net gain is going to probably, you know, definitely, it's going to impact uh, more local authorities than nutrient neutrality because it's compulsory uh, across England. Earlier today, there was a laws committee meeting where questions were raised over if biodiversity net gain is is going to be a deterrent uh, to building, particularly on brownfield land, mm-hmm. which is land which has been previously developed. And this is something that, you know, I've also heard developers talk about because that's often uh, it's, it's cheaper land mm. and, and so easier to, to develop. What, what do you think? Is that correct? Is is biodiversity net gain going to be a deterrent in some areas for building? And it shouldn't be. And first thing I would say is that actually there's an awful lot of good practice that the development sector has been doing in many cases for a number of years that we've built this policy from. So it very much has been developed hand in hand, if you like, with with members of that sector and can pay credit to to some of the early work that's been done. Um, In terms of the specifics on brownfield, we know um, that many brownfield sites uh, can have very low biodiversity value. Um, Where I live in South London, there's quite a lot of it. Um, There is some nature there, but it's typically of quite poor quality. 
the, temp, the percentage requirement for net gain is, is dependent on what the value of your site is as well. So in many instances, a brownfield site would get a very low baseline because of the fact there's not much there. So a 10% gain off that is comparatively straightforward to deliver. There are instances where that's not the case, where you've got brownfields that actually are high value. Um, and that's something you know, the metric tries to you know, recognise, the fact there are certain sites that are important. Mm-hmm. In those instances, it's most likely the development will probably need to deliver the bulk of what they're looking to do off-site um, through this kind of third-party contract. What's different, I think, with net gain is that there's always a fallback option. So there's if you find you can't deliver your gains on site and you're struggling to find somewhere off site as a developer the option is always open to you to purchase what are called statutory biodiversity credits Mm. from government they are a last resort um, but it's there to make sure your scheme isn't held up basically so you've got a way through this if for some reason you you are struggling Um, but and I think that's one of the key differences as well from some of the other kind of approaches and how expensive is it really for a developer um, compared to, because there's lots of duties placed on developers yeah. outside of the environmental ones. How does how does biodiversity net gain compare to those? So we've, um, at Wundefer indeed, um, undertook a series of viability studies in support of the policy when they were first consulting on it. Um, and they couldn't find evidence that this would have a negative impact on, on viability. And they ran it through a variety of different uh, kind of planning and development scenarios as well. And that was true both for house building and also for kind of big infrastructure projects. I mean, big infrastructure projects, it was typically coming in, it's about between one, half and you know, three quarters of a percent of the total capital costs of that scheme. So the costs are small. Um, we know that um, viability can often be a concern for, for developers. Developers won't be able to challenge though that 10% on, on viability grounds. Mm, but I suppose if a local council was saying, well, we want you to do 20% or 30%, um, the developer could turn around and say, you can't make me. This and I think it's a good challenge here, and I think this is where if anyone listening in from a the kind of local government as well, um, absolutely the bill does allow you to go beyond ten percent. Our advice to local authorities thinking about doing that is firstly set out very clearly in your local plan what your requirement is, so there's no surprise to the developer midway through a scheme. And secondly, uh, ensure you've got evidence uh, as well to you know, kind of back up what you're asking for. And I know some authorities are already you know, developing this. Because you're right, people could turn around and challenge and say they'll need to be able to defend their policy. But they're absolutely right to be able to. If they think they can do it and they think mm. it's, it's, it's valid um, and it's not going to impact viability, then yeah. Okay. So we're just a few months out now from it becoming compulsory. Um, what sort of feedback have you got from those local authorities and developers, but I'm particularly interested in local authorities? Are they ready to go, ready to get going? I think it's probably fair to say it's a mixed picture. Um, so for some local authorities, um, this is something that's not new to them. They've been, you know, It's been in the national planning policy framework for many years now, and there's been some authorities that have been implementing net gain locally and successfully. Um, we've been working with a body called the Planning Advisory Service, um, and through that running a whole series of kind of webinars, training events, et cetera, both for uh, authority officers and for members. It's been really well attended. There's one uh, just the other day, and it had over 700 attending that. Um, government, I think, has recognised that there are financial pressures. We all know there's financial pressures on local government. Government has kind of recognised that. And there was some additional funding uh, made available at this uh, back in the spring to help authorities um, kind of get ready for, for net gain. I think my message to local government is no one's expecting this to be 
you delivering this perfectly from the outset. This is going to be new still for many people. We understand that. Uh, we're keen as, as Natural England, as are others, to keep working with, with local government uh, so that we can kind of help ensure that there is a smooth rollout and also help, help you know, to see how can we then, you know, from that point, kind of build on that as well and kind of further improve the delivery of the policy. Mm. Because I um I spoke to a number of people from from the sector ahead of uh, this interview. That's so like developers, uh, lawyers, NGOs, and you know asked if they had one thing they could ask about biodiversity net gain, what that would be, and lots of questions came <laughs> in. But um one recurring theme across all of them uh, was how is biodiversity net gain going to be monitored? Yep. How will anyone actually know it's working and not some new sort of greenwash? Um, I, I suppose like the big question with this is you know it all sounds great this idea that developers will, will increase biodiversity not not decrease it but if a, a developer were to fail to deliver the promised biodiversity net gain on any particular site would anyone notice so, so i'm delighted people are picking up on this as well because for a long time people weren't thinking kind of longer term it's very much focused on the you know the, the immediate you know like metric and, and side of that and you're right they're right to say actually this needs to be a long-term thing so yes um people notice in two ways at a national level we're running on behalf of government a national monitoring and uh, evaluation program so it's it started um it will run for at least five years hopefully extended beyond that as well and it's intended to look at the kind of macro level to say to what extent is this policy working are there adjustments that we need to make at all are there any perverse outcomes that's generating and it will get data from things like the national register etc to help inform that on a site specific level it comes down to if it's if it's uh, gains being delivered on site then that's around the um the kind of reporting and enforcement of if needed of planning conditions we know at the moment that regime's not perfect um there are discussions going on with uh, department for leveling up and, and others to say actually what more could we do how could we make sure that um, enforcement officers have you know capacity and also um, we've got information to help them kind of undertake enforcement if needed what information can we make available to local communities so that you or I can see, well, actually, that's not what we expected. That's not what was supposed to be delivered. Um, and then equally on the offsite, um, where there are legal agreements in place, there will be this national register that will be transparent. So anyone would be able to access that and see, you'll be able to track through. So if, again, you've got a development taking place next door to you, if, it's, if they're saying, don't worry, the mm. gains are happening somewhere, you'll be able to go on and track and see where that actually is happening, see what was being proposed. Um, the that, that project will need to provide reporting back to the local authority mm. as well. Um, and again, there's conversations with government on what can we do to try and make sure there's capacity in the system so that ultimately, if there's a need to undertake enforcement action, go local government can do that as well and has got the resource to do that. Yeah, because it is—it's down to to local planning authorities to enforce biodiversity net gain, rather than Natural England or or, or any other kind of national um, body. And as you you kind of mentioned, that Defra has announced some extra funding um, for for those local authorities in the ballpark of about twenty million. Although I think there's been quite a lot of noise about how that you know doesn't really cut the muscle when there are about 400 uh, local planning authorities. But you, you're Natural England, you don't hold the purse strings, I understand not, that. Yep. <laughs> um, but from a, from a delivery point of view, I mean, is it is it possible? I know you say it won't all, not everything will be perfect in November, but how how long will it take for it to maybe become, um, per, maybe not perfect, but to be in a really good position with the way LPAs are currently funded? Like, 
Is is it is it really going to work? So we're confident. Well, we're confident rather than it well. Um, we recognise there are pressures. Um, so we are trying to identify those particular authorities where we feel there may be particular support needed for them. So we're doing this exercise, as I said, jointly with planning advisory service and others to try and reach out to those authorities. Um, there are there is a very active kind of authority network as well. So there's a lot of practice being shared between authorities, which is great to see as well. This is nothing quite like peer-to-peer learning as to how this can how this can work. Um, but I think this is a fair challenge to raise as well. And it's something we'll keep kind of Hold, you know, reminding government about as well the fact that um, whereas um, we do feel that practice will continue to improve over time, it does require kind of an ability for ultimately the planning authority, or if it's a section, if it's a secured through a conservation covenant, a responsible body to, if needed, undertake enforcement action, and they need some capacity to be able to do that and resource to do that as mm. well. So, um, I mean. The good news in in this is that we are creating a market. So in terms of what landowners are charging for developers, they're perfectly within their rights to include within that price the cost of submitting, undertaking reporting. So there is money potentially there in the system as well. And I think we just need to think through ways of being able to ensure that actually from a local authority perspective, they're able to uh, undertake that ensure, that enforcement if needed and that monitoring. Yeah. I suppose it's not just about enforcement as well. I guess it's uh, having the skills within our local authority to be able to even look at a developer's plan and say, actually, that doesn't make any sense or that's not ecologically viable. Um, and that's a really good point. And there's skills is an issue that I think applies across many sectors, actually, not just within local government. So uh, I think, you know, within ecology, um, the kind of professional body is recognised. You know, there's lots of ecologists that are very competent and highly trained, but they may be highly trained in species identification because that historically has been where the work is. Um, so there's a lot of kind of training that's been run through bodies like SAIM to kind of retrain, reskill ecologists. Similarly, uh, the Landscape Institute is, is doing a similar exercise with, um, like I say, architects the rtpi is also uh, looking at training there's other training coming through um, we're working with uh, local governments and with others to create kind of checklists for planners because they won't necessarily have an ecologist immediately to hand um, mm. but to have something for them that at least alerts them and flags them to them that actually this is something you really do need to get a second pair of eyes and a, a kind of ecology eyes onto this particular project there'll be schemes where you don't necessarily need a great deal of kind of in-depth investigation onto it. Again, going back to where I was saying some urban sites where if you're starting on a scheme that's got very low existing biodiversity, that should be a relatively straightforward scheme to look at. um, And you won't necessarily even need an ecologist to look at that. Um, But absolutely, there'll be sites where you want to focus that effort. So we're trying to create checklists and guidance for authorities to help them triage, um, to focus on actually here's the schemes that are the risky ones, or here's the ones where actually there's real opportunity to get something further from this particular Mm. scheme. I suppose some of those brownfield sites we were talking about earlier might be, not in some cases, like you say, in uh, super urban sites, but some brownfield sites are really super rich in biodiversity kind of because they've been left to the wild. So I suppose those are the sort of ones that that might be a bit tricky. Um, I want to move on to to talk a bit about the biodiversity net gain metric. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's the tool that developers and local authorities will be using to say, um, this site originally had X value in terms of of nature, biodiversity. So they can then show by the same measure that there's been a a 10%, at least 10% increase. I think the idea of assigning a value to to biodiversity is quite alien to most people. So could you just explain how Natural England has gone about 
with DEFRA, developing it and, and choosing, you know, what, what is more or less valuable as a piece of nature. Yeah. So this is a process that's been going on iteratively for about the past 10 years now as well, and working not just with, with government, but with actively involved with um, the NGO community, with um, developers, ecologists, etc., trying to kind of finesse this this tool. Its value is that up until now, we've never had a mechanism of being able to kind of recognize nature. So if you're a developer, you have tools available to you that calculate your carbon, can calculate the amount of water your scheme's using, etc., but not your nature impact. So its value is as something enables them to kind of understand kind of what impact they're having on nature, I think is really powerful. And it's being picked up globally now as well. We're, we're beginning to see that. Um, it's it's a proxy for biodiversity. So nature's complex, inherently complex, um, and it can't measure everything. It doesn't seek to do that. So it uses habitats as a kind of proxy for, for wider biodiversity, um, and very much is focused on yeah, kind of what what the condition of the habitat is, how much of it is there you know, in terms of its area or length. And then where is it as well? Is it in a place where actually it's 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 doing the job ideally that it can do? Um, there is um there is evidence kind of that underpins all of this as well. So we've uh, worked with our own specialists. We've sought other specialist input to say, what are the appropriate values for these particular habitats? And yeah, people who've perhaps been following the metrics evolution over years will notice that some of those values have changed. And we, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, got, it's gone through multiple iterations. It has, it has. And, <laughs> what and number are we at now? We're at four. Uh, <laughs> we're at version four. Um, the statutory metric will be coming out later on this year, which we expect to be um, very similar to four. I mean, one of the things that's been fantastic has actually been the kind of engagement and feedback we've had from people around it. Um, so people have been really passionate about wanting to make sure that it does the job as best it can in terms of capturing a value for nature. Is it making, is it, you know, properly valuing some habitats that we know are particularly valuable for invertebrates, for example, et cetera. So where we've had evidence and where and people have provided stuff through to it, we have made adjustments to some of the values and that's an ongoing base uh, process as well. So mm. what we've said to government is this becomes the statutory metric come November um, when mandatory net gain starts. We've said to government, we want an ability to keep advising you on yeah, potential future updates to the metric that will require the then secretary of state to consult on that because there needs to be a period of stability as well we can't keep changing it all the time um but we expect that kind of post november the metric will then get we'll make recommendations every three to five years about further improvements that could be made and that could be both in terms of how it values particular habitats if there's more science or better evidence around certain things it could also be around the format it's in so at the moment it's in excel um it's does its job, but it's not the you know, it's not the most up to date kind of uh, format, if you like, either. So yeah, the idea of digitising in the future is something we're also looking at. Yeah, okay. there, there there was an earlier version, I think, where there some scientists in the Times, I think, spoke out calling it the, the single most dangerous thing to be done by a statutory agency. I mean, that was in 2021, so we're, we're a few years on since then. But I think I have to I have to say it does still have some critics, and you say that you're going to keep reviewing it. Um, but this is a, a paper just out in, in April, I think it was, by some uh, academics in Oxford showing that um, the, the metric when followed leads you ending up with smaller, more isolated fragments of habitat, um, which some would, you know, many would agree is less valuable for nature than a larger area of, of well-managed land would be. Um, and of course, you're trying something new, so maybe things aren't always going to work out. But how concerned are you that the metric, even if you keep improving it, um, if you go for three or five years without doing so, could have some big unforeseen consequences potentially. So I think it's important to bear in mind 
the situation currently as well. And going back to what I was saying earlier on, the um, we're in a situation where when there's not net gain, most sites that aren't protected have no protected species on board. The habitats on those sites are totally ignored. They have no value whatsoever um, within the planning system. What the metric does is for the first time, it begins to give a value to those. It forces people to consider what to do about those, how to improve them. So I think that's a significant change just in its own right. And the fact that it also affords a high value to habitats of real importance helps to reinforce the mitigation hierarchy. But it's important people don't use the metric in isolation. So you've got other things happening. So within the Environment Act, there is also the introduction of local nature recovery strategies, of which there's just been a, a recent announcement. And I think those are really important, as are existing strategies, when it comes to think, avoiding this issue around creating little pockets mm. of, of kind of um, microhabitats or trying to do that. Because as you say, we know that what nature needs is it needs better connectivity, it needs bigger spaces, it needs an ability for wildlife to move between sites as well. Um, and the metric incentivizes you if you're delivering what it terms in strategically significant locations or strategically significant outcomes, you get an uplift basically. Mm. Um, and it kind of is trying to nudge you to do that. And that's where it's linking across to those local strategies to say, actually, to avoid this issue of you know, trying to create a kind of tiny little patch of really great habitat, which you know is probably not going to survive. Um, it's encouraging you to say, no, don't do that. Um, deliver in places where locally it's been identified that actually this is the location that's optimum for nature. These are the sorts of outcomes. Deliver it there. We've also changed some of the condition assessments as well, just to reflect the fact that it's not possible to deliver certain habitats in close proximity to people and their pets. There's a great amount you can do, and we don't want people to just not try anything. Um, can you give but, an example of that? Though? Well, some of the kind of high-quality grasslands. So uh, the, the kind of academics you referred to, they also did a study a couple of years ago, I think um, using some uh, kind of local plan examples in the south of England. And there were schemes where uh, developments were trying to argue and the ecologists were trying to argue, we can deliver you know, really high-quality grassland within this housing scheme. Well, that's quite challenging to achieve because of the fact you've got kind of people and disturbance and pets and issues around kind of soil quality. So at the time, this is one of the earlier iterations of the metric, um, we recognised that actually there's something we could do. Um, so there's two issues there. Firstly, why was the ecologist advising them that? Um, there's an issue for you know, how can we work with the ecology profession to upskill them, um, but also to make sure that the condition assessment material that comes along with the metric also makes the point that actually that's not an outcome that's viable um, ecologically. You may try to do that, but you're never going to achieve that outcome. So again, the areas where we've been able to tweak within the metric guidance and within the metric condition assessments, and bear in mind these will become you know, a legal thing as well with it mandatory net gain to steer people away from claiming to be able to do things that we know are probably dodgy from the outset um, and also working with the profession to say we need to make sure ecologists understand this as well so it's, you know, to be fair to them this is all quite new and people aren't trying to use it or claim to be able to use it in ways that it's not appropriate for mm. I was just thinking there about the people uh, their pets and you know, I guess children needing places to play and it's yeah. all, all kind of all these quite difficult uh, social factors that come into to biodiversity net gain. Um, is it, I know that Natural England has a remit to improve access to nature for people as well as obviously to yeah. improve uh, the natural environment. Um, and this all seems to come to a head of it in this policy, the biodiversity net gain. Is it, is there a risk that it's trying to do too much by 
trying to balance too many factors. So it's in, in terms of what its primary aim is, it's to, about delivering the kind of nature improvements. And there's ways of doing that, uh, which are a, a definite gain for a site. It, you, you definitely left a, a better situation than was there beforehand. You may not have delivered the best possible habitat outcome, um, but what you've achieved is something that's still beneficial for local species and is potentially something that's also usable and accessible for, for local people. Um, there are, I mean, I'm always surprised by the fact that um, I've lived in London for the best part of 20 years. I also have a relationship with a record centre in London. The amount of wildlife in London is, is, is quite astonishing if, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with it at times. So, so there's an awful lot that can happily coexist with people. And is, you know, local government's been doing this for many years where they've been designing parks in a way to say, actually, here's the bit that's a bit more formal. This is the, you know, this is the, this is the kick around area or this is the, the kind of family picnic area. But actually over there is the bit that we're managing slightly differently because that's a bit that's for nature and a lot of that's just around how you communicate that so the two can coexist but there but it's also true to say there are certain habitats we know or certain things where actually that's much more challenging and realistically then you are better doing it off-site and you know that you'd be perfectly justified in, in doing that mm. um so we talked a lot about the challenges uh with biodiversity net game what in your view, needs to happen next to make to make sure it's a success. So you've touched on a few of the things. So I need to, you know, we need to make sure that there's um, actual enforcement and monitoring of this, and you know, there are there is work un- underway looking at that. I think one of the what to me one of the great things about biodiversity net gain is this. I think this has been a genuine collaboration. So this isn't something that has been created by government. In many respects, this has come from uh, different sectors to say actually this is quite useful for us, and it's a way of delivering positive outcomes. Um, and people have been really happy to kind of share practice, share learning, improve things. Um, and maintaining that, I think, will be really important as well, because I think we can keep learning from each other. And yeah, it's not necessarily going to be perfect on day one. I don't think anyone expects that. Um, but it will be better than the current system without net gain as well, where you've got this ongoing kind of loss of, of nature with nothing, no attempt necessarily being made to address that. I think longer term, uh, government talked in its, um, going back a, a while now, and it's then 25-year environment plan about environmental net gain and again, going beyond biodiversity. How can we approach that? Mm. You know, there's, there's, there's test metrics, you'll be pleased to know, that we've, we've been developing. Um, there's other approaches others are developing as well to say, actually, yeah, Yes, nature, critical, really important. Biodiversity is a fundamental underpinning, but um, we're in a nature crisis, we're also in a climate crisis. There are other issues at play here as well. And how can we best design places that can deliver the nature benefit, but also potentially some of these wider benefits as well? So I think... Mm, how far off are we from that sort of thing coming in? In some areas, it's it's there, I think. Mm. So, um, so carbon is a good example. So... We pretty much know how to, exactly how to measure carbon. It's I'm not a scientist, but it's relatively straightforward. It's easy to do. Other things such as the uh, kind of social benefits of interaction with nature. There's you know, the science is still kind of debatable, if you like. Um, and one of the challenges I think is getting to a point where you can get a tool. If you want it to essentially mirror biodiversity net gain, it's getting to a point where you've got a tool which is simple enough yet robust enough to be used by a range of projects so they don't need an entire university department behind them or whatever to understand it that you can then roll out and implement um, and be fairly confident that you doing so isn't going to lead to perverse outcomes as well. So we have been piloting uh, a thing called the Environmental Benefits for Nature tool. It links to the biodiversity metric. We're continuing to kind of 
tweak and adapt it. There are other things available as well. Um, to some extent, it will depend on where policy goes. Um, but we're really keen as Natural England to kind of continue that work and to continue to try and be able to make a case to say, actually, here's a tool that allows you to start capturing some of the, the much wider benefits that we know we get from the natural environment, you know, beyond the, the kind of biodiversity, um, and and have it in a place where people can readily use it as well. So sounds like lots, lots, lots coming down the line. Um and you yourself, you've been working on this for years. You were telling me about it before we we came into the podcast studio. How do you feel seeing the thing you've worked on for seven years about eventually about to become made a legal requirement? It's been a really fascinating journey to kind of watch this kind of evolve. Um, I mean, the thing that I think is amazing at the moment, and in a way, kind of going back to what I was saying about you know, learning, building from others, is the amount of this has become business as usual for so many projects now as well. It's not a legal requirement. It's to reinforce that. But um, on a regular basis now, you get kind of projects coming through, as you see, looking to deliver this net gain, that net gain. Um, and I just think the fact that this is not just happening in this country, that we're getting a lot of international interests now um, around this um, from you know rest of Europe, North and South America, Asia, all interested in this approach. What, yeah, could they apply it to themselves? So I think it's 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 causing people to reevaluate what their expectations from development are. Um, at and development is only one aspect of what you know, has a, has an impact on our natural environment as well. So there's other issues we also, I think, need to address. But I think just getting to a point where we have changed our expectations, that's been a really significant change. And I think it's a it's a powerful legacy in its own right. Mm, good, a good dose of uh, optimism to, yes. <laughs> to lead, lead the podcast on. And it's fantastic to hear that there are people internationally looking at the, the what England's doing as a as a kind of case study, I guess that's all the more reason to get it done properly. Um, yeah, and also to kind of learn from them as well. So again, this is an ongoing kind of iterative process, if you like. Um, we, yeah, other countries started versions of this slightly ahead of us. They took quite different approaches, all focused on offsetting uh, with varying degrees of success. Um, they're now looking at what's happening in England now as well and saying, is there something we could learn from from what England's doing as well? So. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Nick, for coming on to the Eco Chamber and um, see you soon. Yep, my pleasure. Thank you, Tess. And that's it. Uh, on today's episode, I've learned that it may be a dangerous thing to cut the green crap when it comes to environmental policies, that nutrient neutrality is a fragile thing when it comes to nascent markets, that the 25-year environment plan isn't what it's cracked up to be, at least if it was, we might hear Therese Coffee saying something about it. And that biodiversity net gain by hook or by crook will be coming into force later this year. My thanks to Tess Collie, Pippa Neal, Nick White and Hannah Holt, our sound engineer, who, who's, this is our, her last go here. I hope yeah. you've enjoyed recording with us, Hannah. You can speak. You tell yes, I have. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. She, 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 by, she means it. She means it, listeners. She's had a great time with us. Uh, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the readers of The Ends Report, whose subscriptions ensure that important investigative journalism actually takes place. So why not you, your company, your business, your organisation, consider taking out a subscription? So that's it. Um, until the next time, please take care, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Eco Chamber. <laughs>